Thanks for pressing play. On this episode, you'll learn how do ordinary people do legendary things? How can we all push ourselves to go far beyond ourselves? And how can we do whatever it takes to live our dreams? You see, our guest today is Colin O'Brady, and he is an extraordinary, extreme athlete. He has summited Everest twice, and he became the first person ever to solo trek across Antarctica. And he's a 10-time world record-breaking explorer and adventurer, and he's considered to be one of the most legendary endurance athletes on the planet. As a matter of fact, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, says, quote, Colin O'Brady's amazing adventure is well-written and a fast read, but hang on to it after you finish. On down days, go back to the book and it will pick up your spirits dramatically. And he's got a new book out called The 12-Hour Walk, which invites you to do something very simple and very powerful, which is take a one-day hike by yourself with no technology, and I hate to say, not even a podcast. (laughs) And his prior book is also a legendary read. It's called The Impossible First, From Fire to Ice Crossing Antarctica Alone, and it's a great read and a New York Times bestseller. As you'll hear, Colin is just a, quote, regular dude, proving that we can all do some serious legendary in our lives. Now, as you know, we are experiencing a dialogue depression on planet Earth, and I'm very concerned about it. Around here, we're trying to change that. If you believe that real dialogues matter, that real dialogues are how we learn, connect, and inspire each other, and that real dialogues can and do create different futures, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the number one business real dialogue podcast. Some people even call us an oddcast. Now, the most important question in business today is, are we going to beat, meet, or miss on revenue? And it turns out that many CEOs, CROs, CFOs, CMOs, and UFOs have a very hard time answering that question. That's where my friends Clary come in. You see, Clary is the world's leader in revenue collaboration and governance. Imagine one revenue platform that empowers every revenue critical person in your company to work together on, you guessed it, revenue. Visit CLARI.com today and learn how to run revenue. That's Clary.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Colin, it sure is great to have this time with you. I've been uh, waiting in anticipation for our discussion. I'm, it's really fun to be here with you too, my friend. I'm excited. So I got a billion questions uh, for you, but maybe the first one is, why do you do what you do? <laughs> why do I do what I do? Yeah, you know, uh, it's, a, it's an easy question to ask. You're like, um, you know, why would somebody walk alone across Antarctica for 54 days dragging a 375 pound sled by themselves? Uh, <laughs> I ask myself that question sometimes. <laughs> like, do you ever say, what the fuck am I doing out here? <laughs> you know, there's a funny moment. Uh, 
that I, my, my wife is an, my number one supporter. We've built all our businesses together and she's helped me dream up all these world record expeditions and helped me execute on them. But I do, uh, although crossing Antarctica solo is one of my proudest achievements other, among others, but I do remember a moment where I called her from my sat phone. It was maybe 35 days in this 54 day ordeal. I was you know, minus 30, minus 40 average temperature, 50, 60 mile per hour winds, minus 70 regular, regularly. Um, no one had ever completed this crossing before because you, people run out of food. They run out of fuel. People have died trying, you know, whatever. I was burning 10,000 calories a day, but I was only carrying 7,000 with me. And to your question, I remember calling her around day 35, crackly sat phone connection. I say to her, hey, if I ever tell you I want to do this again, make sure to tell me, remind me that I don't. <laughs> uh, it's funny, you know, but... Uh, but you continue to do these things, exactly. right? I don't know. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this phrase, type two fun. So type one fun is like fun. We, we you know, normal fun. You know, you're drinking with your buddies, you're, you're dancing, you're partying, you're hanging out with your wife and out watching a beautiful sunset, you know, sun, whatever. It's fun. It's just fun. Just fun for fun. So that's type one fun. Type two fun is... It's not super fun when it's happening, but you get like a week or a month of distance, the nostalgia. You're like, oh, remember that time we got caught out in that storm? It was this epic thing. And you're, you know, you're talking, you're telling war stories from, from, from the yesteryear. So uh, there's a lot of type two fun in my life. But, you know, I, uh, you know, all jokes aside, I find a ton of depth and fulfillment from pushing my body, you know, exploring the limits of human potential, um, not, not just in the physical sense, in the emotional, mental sense. And I, my whole, my new book is all about mindset. So, you know, to me, that's a deep fashion of mine as well. It's funny how the distance makes it less horrible, right? I don't know why this is in my brain, but there's that Woody Allen quote that says, comedy is just tragedy plus time. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. And Perfect. so it's like happiness, just just suffering plus time. <laughs> <laughs> there's something about nostalgia. It's like, uh, I, I know it's something not you and I will ever be able to relate to, but it's like childbirth, right? You know, in the moment that a woman's going through so much intensity and pain and when it's happening and I, I'm never going to do this again. And then, you know, not long after, it's like, I want another one of these. I want another one of these, you know? Um, I can never understand that, by the way, because if I had to do that uh, there's no way i'd do it again i don't why well, wouldn't sign up to do it once <laughs> i don't know what happens it, it, you know something God like bless mother nature exactly or, the human experience you know we can we can have these low lows and these intense moments and and in the end gain some a lot of positive things from them now you know i've never done anything remotely close to these kinds of things that you do but i you know i have had my moments in the backcountry and done multi-day backcountry ski trips and spent a lot of time backpacking in the Sierra and so forth. So that would be the closest I've ever come. And in those experiences, you know, when you're trying to, you know, climb Mount Lassen, the volcano, and you're in a sketchy spot and, and it gets real dicey, there, there are moments where you think, holy shit, you know, you're clearly not having fun. I did one on Lassen where a, a sort of a, a weird storm came in unforecasted and we had to abandon. And, you know, so there are moments where you're like, not only is this not fun, but I'm going to die. But on the kinds of things that I do, because they're nowhere near as extreme, I think, as what you do, I have a lot of moments on those adventures where you're in the pure joy of it, where you just, you look up and you notice the sky or the trees or the, you know, whatever it is, or, or you know, you're skiing and you kind of turn and you get into that super flowy approach. And, and so there's, there's pure joy in some of the, you know, uh, excitement and pain and, 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 and adventure when you're doing an extreme trip like this where, you know, if a very small thing goes wrong, you could die and you're at 
pretty much, I don't know, you tell me the coldest place in the world. Are there moments of fun and joy or is it just a lot of fucking white knuckling? No, you know, what's been what's been so interesting is to sort of play with those emotions. Uh, you know, like you said, uh, I think as humans, we are, are patterned to actually want to be outside in some regard, right? Of course, in a modern society and urban settings, etc. Um, we don't certainly have as much connectedness to that as we did 100 years ago, or certainly 1000 years ago, you know, in a human evolution, of course. But I think it's in our DNA, you know, it's our DNA to be outside in nature, like you said, kind of those moments where you look up and you know, after a busy week or a busy month or a busy year, you look up and you kind of watch the, the clouds go past for a second or something like that. There's something very grounding in those experiences. You know, this, this, which I'm sure we'll get into, but the new book is really a call to action for people to take this day, this moment to, to go deep inside their body, mind and soul, but also be outside. We'll talk more about that. But your question really is, is it all about white knuckling? You know, it's interesting is, there, there's all sorts of moments of doubt. There's all sorts of moments of fear, uh, of course, and hardship in, in some of these experiences. You know, I've climbed Everest twice. I've walked across Antarctica, so I rode a boat uh, across the most dangerous ocean rowing, ocean crossing in the world, the Drake Pass. You know, forty foot swells in a tiny little rowboat. There's a reason no one in history had ever done that before. Me and a team attempted it because it's uh, you know pretty ridiculously hard and cold and, and brutal. But when I was crossing Antarctica solo, 54 days alone, pulling a 375-pound sled full of all my food and fuel, no one had ever done that before. So many hardships, as you mentioned. But as I got into the last few weeks and certainly the last few days, my body was as broken down as it's ever been. I'd lost, I'd lost, you know, 30 plus pounds. You know, I'd frostbite on my cheeks and face. You know, I was beat up. But as my body got weaker, I found my mind getting stronger and stronger and stronger. What actually ended up happening, and, and I read a chapter uh, in my first book, The Impossible First, that came out a couple years ago about this crossing specifically. The last chapter of that book is actually called Infinite Love. It's not called, I'm awesome. I did this thing that no one's ever done. And I white knuckled it. It's actually, it's a, it's a chapter about flow. It's a chapter about feeling connected. It's a chapter about feeling deep level of purpose and connectedness. Um, because when I was stripped bare of all these challenges and all these hardships, I actually found these sort of high highs. And when I got to the end and I, you know, there was a post at the end of Antarctica, a thousand, thousand miles roughly from one side of the continent to the other doing something no one had ever done. It was one of the highest highs of my entire life. And I've come to think of, and this is not just relative to uh, Antarctica or experience like that, but this relates to anyone, entrepreneurship, uh, which I know a lot of your, you know, a lot of people are interested in, you know, entrepreneurship, love, whatever that is, it, you know, is our tens, our high highs, I've come to think of life on this sort of spectrum, you know, one being our lowest moments, what the frostbite on the face, the, the brutal challenges of whatever, you know, venture you're putting towards, you know, as an entrepreneur yourself, we, we know those ones, right? You know, you know, those hardships, that white knuckling and that experience, right? The tens are the high highs. But as I got to the other side of Antarctica and touched this post and realized I had completed this thing, even in that moment of 10, I realized, you know, my tens and ones are connected. I'm not feeling this 10 in spite of my ones. I'm feeling this 10 because of my ones. And what I mean by that is I've come to realize that in our modern society, too often people live in what I call the zone of comfortable complacency. This, this zone between four and six, the zone of just like, eh, like it's all right. Like I've got a job, like I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's fine, whatever. Like it pays the bills, but it's, I'd spend a lot of my time doing it five. Five, a day after day, five, five, five. Or you're in a relationship with someone for a long period of time and it's like you coexist. It's not toxic. You're not abusive to one another. It's not like some horrible situation, but it's also not like amazing. It's just kind of like, yeah, we just, you know, I'm existing. Five, five, five. 
And people ask me sort of your, your question a little bit, you know, my white knuckling, but also people ask me, Colin, are you afraid to die? You're doing these things that are life threatening, they're risky, et cetera. And my answer is yes, I'm afraid to die. I, I don't have a death wish. I don't think I'm an adrenaline junkie. But what I'm more afraid of is not living, of not living. And I want to feel the full tapestry of life's experience, the full spectrum of one to 10. And I realize if you live only in the four to six, most people live there because they're so, they're hedging so hard against experiencing any hardship, experiencing anything outside their comfort zone, experiencing any one. And by hedging against the downside risk of the ones, the twos, the threes, you're also cutting yourself off from experiencing the eights and the nines and the tens. And that's where I think the juice and the fulfillment and the depth of life is really lived. Fascinating. Thank you for that. I'm curious, remind me, Colin, how old you were when you did your what you would consider your first sort of challenging outdoor adventure. So the first world record I set was in 2016, um, something called the Explorers Grand Slam. So but no, no, e- even before that, uh, how old were you when you set the first world record? Yeah, 2016 was the first world record. Um, but how old were you? Oh, sorry. Um, I was 31 then. Yeah, I'm 37 yeah. now. Okay, so maybe take me back younger. You developed a taste and enthusiasm for outdoor adventure and athletics and, and, and the like at a younger age than that. Did you not? Yeah, you know, you know, not not at the you know, let me cross Antarctica by myself kind of level, but I. Uh, it's not normally where most people start. Yeah, no, right? I um, you know, I was born in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, kind of somewhat of a funny uh, bringing into the world birth moment. I was born on a hippie commune in Olympia, Washington. Um, there were. Uh, uh, my organic- of course you were, Colin. Of course you were. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Keep going. My, my mom invited you know thirty of her hippie friends over to hang out and watch her give birth to me on a futon while she played Bob Marley Redemption song on repeat throughout the the entire birth. So uh, you know, and maybe not your most uh, traditional coming into the world context. And then my family. I grew up. I was born in Olympia, but from a very young age, I lived in Portland, Oregon. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, my parents were young when they had me, didn't have, have a lot of money when I was a kid, um, didn't have the opportunity you know, travel far and wide. But one of the things that's great about the Pacific Northwest and a city like Portland is there's just so much access to the outdoors. And my dad was an Eagle Scout and he would always say, you know, the outdoors are free. And so, you know, what's great about Portland is you can drive 15 minutes, 30 minutes in any direction from the city and you're in, you know, you're at the coast or you're at Alpine Lake or you're at a trailhead or you're, you know, whatever. So I spent a lot of my youth, not necessarily climbing big peaks and summiting technical mountains or anything like that, but just being outside, you know, that's what, that's what we did. That's what our family did, you know, for fun and leisure and grew a passion for that. Definitely for my parents for a young age. And then I know somewhere around age 13 or 14, you know, strangely enough, I think it's in court, it coincides with John Krakow, right? Into Thin Air, which is actually a book about eight people dying on Everest. Um, I was, you know, kind of introduced to that story. And I think that it's usually supposed to be a cautionary tale of this is why you don't do these types of things. Um, but it, it lit up the curiosity of my mind of these remote parts of the world and these great mountains, the Himalayas. And so from a, you know early adolescence, I had this dream. I didn't know, like, again, didn't have a lot of money, didn't have the means, the, the background, the wherewithal. But I was like, Everest, you know, Everest was kind of fixed in my mind as a, you know, a one day goal. You know, hey, maybe maybe one day I'll have the opportunity to get there. And it wasn't at the front of my mind, but there was an echo in the back of my mind for a long time from childhood, for sure. Fascinating. Now, the interesting thing about that, I'm reminded of a conversation I had uh, recently with my uh, writing partner in Category Pirates, Nicholas Cole, and he's about 32 now. And he was sharing how when he was 18, 19, and by the way, this is one of the most high performing, successful, high potential young people I've met, period. 
And so just an extraordinary man, in my opinion, Nicole is. And so one of the things I learned about him was, however, when he was 18, 19, he was not accomplished in his own mind. He felt like he had never really been tested. And he were, he was, I'm sure you've met young people who are like this. He was kind of one of those, eh, mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Kind of, kind of guys. And he went and did Outward Bound mm. and they did, I think it's a 30 day program. Yeah. I, I forget what the name of it is, but, and what he says is it changed everything. And I think you probably know why. And I had an, er, my father, Bruce exposed me to the great outdoors. I was a Cub Scout, you know, I was uh, kayaking or, or canoeing in, in, in Algonquin Park in Canada as a little boy with my dad. So anyway, my point is, what is it about outdoor adventure for some of us who've been drawn to it or, or, or trained in it since we were young, or in the case of my brother from another mother, Cole, who was sort of listless, hadn't had that kind of experience, was in his words, skinny, weak, and, you know, not worth much. And he came back a man. And so what is it about these uh, challenging in nature, adventure, athletic endeavors that is so much more than just a physical challenge. What, what, what is it about that? Yeah. You know, my first reaction to that is I, I think it's twofold. Um, like I said before, I think as, as humans, we have, you know, deep in our DNA, this connection to the outdoor, to outdoor spaces um, and something like an outward bound that your friend took, you know, it's, it's a, it's a break from modern society. Meaning, you know, rather than having your house and your TV or your smartphone, or the internet or all these kinds of things, like you go out there and at first your brain kind of freaks out, right? You're like, I'm used to all this sort of stimulus. And all of a sudden you slow down, but before you know it, you kind of get tapped into the cycles of more of the natural world, the, the, the moonrise, the sunset, the, the breeze, the, the leaves, the trees. And it just kind of, I think there's a, a slowing down um, that happens there. And I think the, the physical sense, I do think that there's that, that primal kind of, you know, feeling in nature, you know, it doesn't have to be the most like hardcore of all hardcore life threatening thing, right? It can be uh, a, a hike, a trail, whatever, but there is something, um, you know, kind of hardwired in us that I think, you know, provides value from that. I think that, you know, what I love about your story is how, how big of a shift that was for this young man when he was 18, 19 years old, that really set him on a different path is finding that from within. What I would say is the, the, and again, this is me totally projecting, but that the experience or all the things that he was to become lived inside of him. But this outdoor experience unlocked that. It's not that if it was this external stimulus that gave it, it was like, oh, he found something that already existed within himself. My new book at its core is a book that has a call to action in it. And the call to action is as simple as this. It says, take a day, walk out your front door, put your phone on airplane mode and go for a 12 hour walk. No music, no podcasts, you know, in silence and stillness. And I don't care if you... Uh, Not no podcast. No po I hate to don't say it. Ridiculous. I hate to say it. I just, I hate to say it. Uh, but... If for one day, right? For one day. It's not to vilify technology. It's not to say, oh, don't, and after that, become a monk, right? It's to say, look, in our modern society, and I, I'm like this, I, I'm on my social media every single day, I'm on my computer every single day, you know, whatever. But it's like, there is a moment in time, just like for your friend Cole, to say, I need a break, I need a reset. And being outside, moving your body, it's so simple. And again, this 12 hour walk that we'll talk about more, but it, 
it, it's not meant to be some crazy endurance challenge. You're thinking to yourself like, oh, well, yeah, this guy Colin O'Brady walked across Antarctica by himself. Of course, he can walk for 12 hours, but I, I couldn't do this. Like, no, this is a mental exercise. I don't care if you go for one mile or 50 miles. I don't care how many breaks you take. The exercise is taking a day alone in your thoughts, in your own head outside. And, you know, my 77-year-old mother-in-law has done the 12-hour walk. And what that looked like for her is one one time walking around her block and then sitting on her front porch for an hour in silence and then walking around her block. You know, she may have covered a mile in, in 12 hours total, but she did the 12-hour walk. So it can look differently, but the exercise is the same for everyone, which is this day, phone on airplane mode outside. And I mean, talk about how we got there, but at essence, it's the same thing your, your friend Cole was experiencing, which is a shift a break, a, a moment to, to tap back in to our inner strength, to our inner knowing, to our inner power so that we can unlock our best life, whether that's in business, whether that's in our relationship, whether that's in our own body, our mind, our souls, etc. We live in a modern world where we can be constantly distracted. And strangely enough, that constant distraction or that bombardment oftentimes, like I said, leads to that life of, uh, you know, comfortable complacency without actually kind of testing you and being able to grow outside of that comfort zone a little bit. And this 12-hour walk is a great exercise to uh, sort of enliven and, and bring that out in people. Well, and I thank you for promoting the idea. This may, be, may sound like a tangential comment, but best I could tell, Colin, we have a crisis in North America called we don't make men. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the data, and I've been tracking the data for four or five years, and we're sort of quietly in the background working on a book about this. But if you start to track the data about um, young men turning into men, what you discover is we are probably in the United States of America at the lowest point in the production of men ever. Uh, one of the worst jobs in the United States of America, by way of example, is military recruiter. Mm-hmm. Because the average... A uh, man of uh, recruiting age, 18, can't do three push-ups. Yep. And we don't get tested physically yep. anymore. And so, you know, somebody who's participated in lots of sports in my life, uh, you know, I think about one extreme. I have my, um, my sort of level one car racing license. You know, I have a 662 horsepower Shelby Cobra Mustang, and I wanted to learn how to drive that thing. And I went and got licensed to do that. Uh, and that's a very particular kind of uh, sport. And there's an endurance element to it, of course. And But that's at the extreme speed, reflex, et cetera. What you do to me feels like almost, if, if not the complete opposite, very much so. And in my limited experience compared to yours, with an adventure sport that is in nature, that is endurance oriented, there's a whole other thing than something like getting your racing license or learning to box or learning to surf and sort of longer missions almost take on a bit of a spiritual component of them. I can remember Mm -hmm. myself being in the Sierra and, you know, you've got, you've got your walking poles, of course, and, and you get into this real rhythm as, as you're walking and you've got your pack on, or in your case, you're dragging this giant sled and the winds in your face and all of that stuff. And there almost becomes a rhythmic quality to your feet and your poles and your movements and the environment around you. And, and you begin to feel like you're on some epic biblical uh, quest. At least that's how I have felt in some of these situations. T- take yeah. me inside your experience of that. Yeah, no, uh, I'll, bring, I'll bring you into that. I wanted to kind of comment 
back on what you're saying about, you know, men, you know, however we want to define that, you know, gender roles, whatever that is. But I think that what, what I'm hearing in, in your comment of saying that is around like initiations, right? There's this, you know, if you go historically through cross cultures, cross centuries, there's been these sort of initiations in different phases of life. And I think that it, in some regard, um, a friend of mine recently said this, I had never heard this term, but he said like a proxy initiation is sort of like, graduate from high school, fine. You graduate from college, fine. Or maybe you're a certain age and it's like, oh, I should get married now. Just sort of these like kind of paved road. You, you should do this next thing, next thing. But each one of those things, not to say, you know, getting through a school or graduation doesn't come with some hardship, but there's not these kind of like more pure initiations. If you go back to sort of, uh, you know, Native American tradition of the vision quest or, you know, things of, of that nature. And again, you can go cross cultures, cross time periods. Um, and you see a lot of this in North America, to your point in our modern society, we have less and less and less of this, both in the, the physical, but I really think a lot of these initiations, you know, talk about a vision quest. Yeah. It's, it's physical in that you, um, and I'm not an expert on, on that initiation, but from my understanding, you know, you're fasting, you're moving your body, you're, you're watching that, but it's, it's a, it's a both mind, body, spiritual connection. I don't say spiritual and religious or dogmatic, but just in a, a connection to your own soul, your own purpose, um, et cetera. And I do think you're right. You know, it's easy to live in today's society society as as a man or a woman um, and play video games, watch TV, do the bare minimum, get by. And to your point, it's like, where, where does that leave you? Where does that leave you when you're 18 years old? Where does that leave you when you're 30 years old? More importantly, a life like that, where does that leave you when you're 80 years old? You know, I, I open my book with an anecdote, a story from my own life about visiting with a room full of billionaires in Manhattan um, at a speaking engagement and an 80-year-old man pulling me aside as I'm talking about various adventures and things I have. And this guy pulls me aside. He goes, you know, I've made more money than you could possibly ever imagine, but there isn't a day in my mind where I don't go back to being 14 years old at summer camp in this rowboat, wishing that I could have this sort of childlike wonder, this awe of the world, the natural world, this movement of my body. He's like, I've spent my life in, in, in an office or at this point, a fancy corner office because he's got a gajillion dollars. But he's, he literally is, exp you know, in the book, the, the, the anecdote, the reason I share it is he's expressing regret, right? This, this external, like I would look at this guy, this guy's got it all. And he's like, but I don't but I, I missed something along the way. Um, and he was encouraging me to follow, follow my bliss, which I appreciated. So, you know, and I frame that around this question of what's your Everest? You know, I asked that to, to, to that room full of people in that moment. I asked that to rooms full of people all the time, which is, I, as I mentioned before, my childhood dream was Everest, right? That was my goal. That was my purpose. That was my calling for some time in my life. And I've been fortunate to climb that mountain twice now, but it doesn't matter if you want to climb mountains. It doesn't matter if you want to go outside and drag a sled. I mean, that's probably not what you're into, but you have something driving you inside of yourself. But this modern society we live in quiets that voice like, oh, that's not for you. That's too hard. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't chase that. You shouldn't go after that. Um, and I think that that is uh, unfortunately destructive. I think that's unfortunately destructive to people living their, their, full, uh, their fullest life, their fullest expression of themselves, whatever their Everest may be. And it's the thing that's interesting about that is we rob ourselves of testing ourselves, right? Right. If I go back to sort of Cole's experience, he was listless in part because here he was a young man, but had never been tested, had never, you know, I'm a, a Canadian originally. And uh, one of our expressions in Canada is, you know, you got to go put some moose on the hood. <laughs> yeah. 
right? And as a man, I have no experience of what it's like to be a woman, but as a man, being able to feel like you can provide and you can take care of yourself and you can survive and in a physical way, you can be tested and come out the other end. And that is an experience that we have generally, I think, robbed a lot of our young people of. And it's part of why I encourage every young person I know to go do Outward Bound. Yeah. Because there's a there's a level of self-confidence that you get when you've been tested in Mother Nature over an enduring period of time that causes you to push through that you can't get any other way. Well, let me let me tell you a story about from roughly that chapter of my life or around the same age period you're talking about. Um, so when I so I I um I was a swimmer in college. I have an economics degree from Yale, um, and which was a, a different divergent path from where I thought I was headed from public school kid from Portland, Oregon. But being recruited to swim, I got an opportunity to have that education, be exposed to a whole different reality of that. It was not my reality growing up by any means. So there was a lot of culture shock there. I didn't even know what investment banking or consulting or any of these things were when I showed up there as a 17-year-old kid. Um, and, I, and I quickly got an education in, in all of those things. And I'm graduating with this economics degree, 2006. You know this pre-credit crisis, so you know, it's like a fast-track paved path with a Yale economics degree to the Goldman Sachs's and the McKinsey's and the whatever New York City big jobs of the world. And to the complete utter surprise of a lot of my peers, they I said I'm not doing that, and at least not right now. And they're like, "What are you talking about? You know, this is like a secure future, secure path." And I said, "You know, I've always wanted to." to see a little bit more of the world. And obviously I know the intensity, the hours required to work these big, you know, investment banking jobs, regardless. I mean, they were offering me more money than I'd ever literally seen in my, more money my parents made, more money I'd ever seen in my entire life, you know, at 22 years old. And I said, actually, I'm going to go travel a little bit first and who knows what's going to happen afterwards. But I feel like I need to have this adventure. I was listening to that inner voice and I had no money. You know, I had um, been painting houses every summer since I was 16 years old to save up a few thousand bucks to buy, you know, books and a few beers and, you know, hang out, whatever, and get through college while I was swimming. But I had saved up, you know, a few thousand dollars. And so I buy a one-way plane ticket, the cheapest student fare that I can possibly buy. Um, uh, and it, I'm trying to get to New Zealand uh, to hitchhike through New Zealand for a couple of months. And they actually say, hey, this cheap student fare gives you a free layover in Fiji. So I stop off in Fiji. Um, I actually, on that, this is 2007 at this point, I, I meet my now wife. So we've been together for 15 years. So that was a win right out of the gate um, on, the, on this island that I wasn't supposed to be on, basically. Um, but I end up... Fijian, Colin? She's not Fijian. She's American. Uh, she was studying abroad at the University of Sydney, but she's from Massachusetts. So uh, I'm curious, what what island were you on? I've been to Fiji many times. Uh, when we met, was on Beachcomber, which is like this party island for young young backpackers. Um, but we went to a okay. few different islands. But yeah, we were. I was on this does like. Ta does Tavarua or Namotu yeah, mean anything yeah, to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I was literally living on the like $10 a day, sleeping on my friend's couch, peanut butter and jelly kind of, uh, I'm sure. And I bet you, know. you smelt real great yeah, too. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, backpack and a surfboard and that was about it. But it was an incredible experience. Like I hitchhiked around New Zealand for a couple months by myself. I surfed through Australia. Like I said, living on as cheap as I possibly could live on. And then I found myself um, on this beach in rural Thailand. And I looked over and I see uh, a flaming jump rope. These guys are jumping a flaming jump rope on the beach in Thailand. And maybe because I was 22 years old without a fully formed prefrontal cortex, or I'm not sure why, but I said, gee, that looks like fun. Let me go try that out. 
And so I decide to jump this flaming jump rope, thinking nothing of it. This looks like a fun activity. And in an instant, my life changed. Um, I tripped on the rope. There was excess kerosene. It sprayed my entire body, lit my body completely on fire to my neck. Um, and I had to jump into the ocean to extinguish the flames, but not before about 25% of my body was severely burnt. It saved my life jumping into the ocean, but I was in a bad shape. There was no skin on the lower half of my body. And you mentioned before this uh, this sort of hero's journey or this sort of like that, what it's like to put yourself out there, this sort of arc uh, of life. You know, here I am at the beginning of this journey, all full of all the excitement, whatever. And now I hit real hardship, real hardship. I'm in a hospital and not even really a proper hospital. I'm in like a one room shack nursing station that they drove me to on a moped because there was no. Uh, and you're in Fiji right now? No, I'm, in, are I'm you in Thailand. I'm in rural Thailand. You're in on, Thailand. On island. Yeah. And how, how old are you at this point? Colin? 20, 22. So you're 22 years old, 25% of your body's burned. I assume you have three degree, third degree yeah, burns second or and worse, third right? Degree. Yeah, exactly. Um, Which are really the most horrific injury you could possibly imagine. Yeah, it's like the most painful. And you're in a horrible. Thai... I mean, like a Thai nursing station shack, like barely. There's like, there's literally a cat running around my bed and across my chest in this makeshift ICU. I mean, it's not like, a, it's not where you want to be. Um, and burn, the reason people die from burns actually is because of infection because um, your your skin is your largest organ in your whole body. Um, it's a bad place to be. Um, but of course the physical trauma was immense. I mean, it was terrible, but I'll never forget the actual emotional trauma, which was even worse. The doctor comes in one day, four or five days in, and he's just being honest and earnest. And he looks at me and he goes, Hey, Colin, um, you'll probably never walk again normally. Um, just the way that the burns are on your ligaments and your joints, like you're probably never regain full mobility um, of your legs. And I just remember the deep devastation of that, just the the downward, complete downward spiral um, that I was going through. And fortunately, there is a, a heroine to this story, which is my mother. Uh, my mother came, uh, found me in this you know shack, and was like. First, you know, you're an idiot. Why'd you jump this flaming jump rope? But did, did she come from Portland or where yeah, did she, she come from? She was coming from Portland, yeah. Um, and she. Isn't it amazing how it doesn't matter how old you are? Yeah, <laughs> right. Your mother's going to save your ass, right? 100%. And she certainly did. In this so she context. gets on a plane from Portland and she comes and finds on you this in Thailand. Of island, of 22 year old moron. Yeah. And what's amazing okay. is I can only imagine what it's like to be a parent, to observe your kid. And I mean, I'm, I'm screaming in horrific pain. We're in this not nice hospital. Um, and she told me now, she told me later, of course, that she was crying herself. She was pleading with the doctors for good news. She was freaked out. I mean, it's a bad situation. She's pretty helpless. But she actually came into my hospital room every single day with this huge smile on her face, this big air of positivity, daring me to dream about the future. Like just being like, this is bad. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You know, Colin, you fucked up. You jumped a flaming jumper. I put your body on fire. Like that's on you. But I'm not going to let you slide into this negativity. I'm not going to let you go so deep in your mind that you're never going to come back. So she starts daring me to dream about the future. And in my new book, The 12-Hour Walk, I talk about this concept. I sort of coin a phrase that's been important to me for a long time that I call a possible mindset. You know, this empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. I'm in my darkest place. All my limiting beliefs, all my fear, all my negativity is running through my head. I think rightfully so. And she's saying, your life's not over. What else do you want out of life? What are the limitless possibilities that lie in your future? So she dares me to sort of do a, a, a visualization of sorts. She says, well, what do you want to do when you get out of here? So I close my eyes and she sees me. She sees me smile for a second. And she's like, what'd you see? And I was like, this is going to sound ridiculous. But I just saw myself cross the finish line of a triathlon in my head. 
And she could have been like, yeah, I said set a goal, but like the legs, the body, the diagnosis, like maybe let's pick a different goal. But instead she was like, you know, again, with this possible mindset, this limitless possibilities, she was like, great. In fact, that's your goal. And she says to the doctor right in that moment, she goes, hey, doc, my son needs some weights. Bring some weights in here. He's training for a triathlon. I have this photo of myself. It's ridiculous. It's, there's a Thai doctor standing over me, looking at me like this stupid American kid. It's ridiculous. And I'm lifting 10 pound dumbbells with my waist bandaged from the waist down being like, doc, I'm training for a triathlon. I mean, it's just a ridiculous scene. Long story short, um, couple months that I was in that Thai hospital, finally released to go back to Portland. I was in a wheelchair. I was carried on and off the plane. My mom literally helped me to walk one step at a time again when I got home. But eventually I moved to Chicago, took a job trading commodities uh, in Chicago to try to kind of get move on with my life and start my career, et cetera. And I signed up for the Chicago triathlon after learning how to walk and jog and run a little bit again. And I honored that goal. And I crossed the finish line of the Chicago triathlon 18 months after being burned. But kind of the kicker to that story is... I hadn't actually just finished the race to my complete and utter surprise. I actually won the entire race, placing first out of nearly 5,000 participants on the day. Now you think maybe the moral of the story is, oh, now what I realized is I'm this superhuman athlete. And that's not the moral of the story for me. The moral of the story is exactly what you said. I, I've never heard the phrase before, but I needed to get a little moose on the hood. You know, like I, I needed to get out in the world, spread my wings a little bit and honestly, fuck up. Like make a huge, egregious mistake. And now I wouldn't wish, I literally would not wish the pain and suffering that I put my family through, that I put myself through on my worst enemy. That said, particularly because of my mother's guidance, this possible mindset that she instilled in me, she also showed me some of life's greatest lessons, this resilience of the human spirit, this belief that I have that all human beings, not just me, we all have these reservoirs of untapped potential to achieve extraordinary things, to overcome obstacles and adversity, particularly when we can strengthen our mind in that direction. And so, you know, again, like, do I have regrets? Would I jump the flaming jump rope again? I don't know. I wouldn't want to put myself through that, but I'm actually, I'm sitting here with 10 world records that all required me to push my legs and my body and whatever. And I'm not sure I would have had that strength had I not felt the depth of that core. What I was saying about the ones and the tens, that was a one. That was an absolute one. But the other tens in my life have come because of having this low moment and more importantly, having this low moment and not letting that define me and allowing myself to continue to proceed from there. I love everything about that, Colin. Thank you. I'm reminded, I was just pulling up the lyrics as you were talking. There's this legendary Dixie Chicks song called Wide Open Spaces. Familiar. And there's a lyric in the song, in the chorus, she needs wide open spaces, room to make her big mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That we need room. And particularly as young people, and some of us continue to do it over time, <laughs> we need to give ourselves room to make a big mistake. And there's a liveness to be found in challenging one's self in the face of owning one's big mistake. <laughs> totally. And I, and I, you know, one of those limiting beliefs is the fear of failure. I don't want to fail. I don't want to take that risk. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, mess up. So therefore I'm not even going to try. And what I've come to realize is, you know, I think that failure plus perseverance equals success. Or another way I like to say that is winners lose the most. Winners lose the most. Meaning like, because the people that you see that have succeeded in their life, they have the gumption to try shit. And more often, it's very rare that you meet someone that's like at the top of their industry or the top of their field. And they're like, and I just got here because I got everything right. 
right out of the gate every single time worked for me. It's like, no, man, I tried a hundred things that didn't work before this success that you're perceiving. I worked my ass off. I failed. I got knocked down. I lost a ton of times, but that is why I have won. Winners lose the most. As Chael Sonnen, the fighter, says, uh, life is not exactly just moonlight and canoes. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I know Chael a little bit. That guy knows how to get punched in the face and come back. That's for sure. Broken his jaw like a hundred times or something. Oh, it's unbelievable. And he's from Portland, of course, which made me think about him. Now, here's another one I've been really looking forward to asking you about. Not long ago, we had legendary author on Ethan Cross, and he's a professor, super smart guy. And he's got a book out that's like one of the hottest books right now. It's called Chatter. The voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. And of course, we all have that little voice. And if you just shut up for a second, you can hear it in your head talking, right? What little voice? (laughs) And so he analyzes this stuff in in what I thought is a very powerful way. And in some ways, you tell me, I say this like an idea, the intentional challenges you put yourself through are in part a way to surface that voice when you think you're about to die when you're on the sat phone remind me what your wife's name is colin jenna jenna when you're on the sat phone to jenna and you're saying sweetheart don't ever let me forget how fucking stupid this is and i'm never going to do this again i gotta believe in part that's because that voice in your head your chatter is screaming those things at you and you're actually just parroting the chatter in your brain to Jenna. Is that a fair assessment? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I'll bring you back to a moment in order to come my very first day. So I'm, I plan for this. I, I take a bunch of interviews with the, the New York Times on the front page article. I'm going to be the first person in history to cross Antarctica solo. I'm flying down there and I find out literally as I'm going down there that there's actually another guy that is going to be attempting this crossing at the same time. This British army military captain. He's like equivalent of a Navy SEAL um, named Captain Lewis Rudd. And he is one of the most experienced polar explorers in the world. And he's just a freaking badass. He's like a trained killer, literally. And when I say the same time, I don't mean like roughly over the same so, two so, months. So it's you versus Jason Bourne is that exactly. so, or basically. James Bond or something basically. like that. Basically. <laughs> and when I say the same time, this makes it even crazier is there's one guy with one plane that can drop you off on the edge of Antarctica. So of course we both called the same one guy and there's one season that you can do it in. So unbeknownst to each other, we both line up the exact same logistics because the only logistics you basically can rob down there. So when I say the same time I'm taking, we are now shoulder to shoulder in a tiny fixed wing cargo plane sitting next to each other, getting dropped off on the frozen continent for a 1000 mile head to head race for the exactly what you said, with Jason Bourne, like staring me down, like, son, like, what are you doing here? And there's a long lineage of British explorers in in the polar region. It's not a huge American pastime, but it's very significant in British lore all the way back to Captain Scott, who was one of the first people to make it to the South Pole. He died trying to get back from that expedition anyways, although, you know, early 1900s kind of thing. The British love polar exploration. He looks at his Captain Rudd's the British like, you know, it's a Brit that should crack this journey first. Like, what the hell are you doing here, stupid American kid? I'm like, I'm talk about the negative voice in my head. Like, I am fully intimidated, but I'm trying to play it off. I'm trying to be like, you know, like I'm good, I'm good, you know, I'll be fine. So Jet Lou and I, we make this um gentleman's agreement. We say, okay. Let's get dropped off, not literally right next to each other for a thousand mile race, pulling 300 pound sleds. Like let's drop one mile equidistant from each other. We're equidistant from the same, you know, waypoint deep in the future, you know, but let's not 
literally stand next to each other. So the, the pilot agrees to that. I jump out of the plane. The plane doesn't even take off. It just literally drives five minutes across the ice. I can see him. He hops out of the plane. We wave at each other. The race starts. And I'm trying to pull my sleds, 375 pounds, because we're trying to do something called solo and unsupported. Unsupported means no resupplies of food or fuel or anything along the way. So 375 pounds, all food and fuel, basically, to try to Okay, so, so slow down here, handsome. So this was not, in your mind, a race. This was Colin on a singular adventure. Up until it, literally uh, this moment, yes. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm uh, going... Up until you get to the plane, or when do you decide that it's you in a race with Jason Bourne? When does that... When do you understand that that's what's I actually... I mean, we both... Basically, the funny thing is, is we both in our home areas, him on the Telegraph in London, me and the New York Times had taken these interviews, again, unbeknownst to each other, and they come out roughly the, the same day, you know, a few days before about to depart. We're both going... We, I aim to be the first person in history to cross Antarctica solo, which means we didn't say, hey, I'm racing this other guy. I said, I'm trying to do this thing historically and be first. But when two people say- and remind me what his name is, Colin? Captain, Captain Lewis Rudd. He even sounds like he's out of central casting. <laughs> he totally, fully. And so we both, when, when both two people says, I'm trying to be the first to do this thing and we're doing it at the same time, what would you call that? Well, you would call that a race. Like that, that is just implicitly a race. <laughs> sounds but, like one to me. Yeah. Um, so. Anyways, I, I try to pull my sled and I thought I've trained. I'm ready. I, I even take this GoPro video myself. The you know, journey of a thousand miles literally begins with a single step. You know, I'm going to hopefully to make history and all this kind of stuff. And I start pulling my sled and I can't move it more than 10 feet. Like I literally cannot move it more than 10 feet. It is so freaking heavy. And the first few hours I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I can't get it going. I'm like, oh no. And I knew the sled would obviously be heavy on the first day. And so I start crying. And, and what do you have on your feet? I assume you have some kind of a snowshoe or just describe the rest like of skis. your gear. Yeah. So I've got big, really heavy boots, you know, really, really massive. You know, they look huge because it's average 30, average minus 40, minus 30 degrees out there. Um, and skis, very, you know, narrow cross country skis. You're not skiing as in like the motion of skiing, but it just disperses your weight on the snow a little bit more. And there's crevasses out there. Hopefully, you know, you don't punch through, you know, a big crevasse and whatnot. So, and do you have um, skins on or skins no on, skins yeah, or exactly. so you yeah, have skins, yeah, skins on? on. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. There's not any kick glide. It's just basically, you know, effectively, right. um, you know, big, big so snowshoes. I, I so could to relate to it as a backcountry skier who, okay, yeah. now you're going to go climb 2,500 feet to go get this pitch. Totally. And you're totally. Gonna get, yeah. Okay. Got so, it. So I'm, I'm out there. I try to pull my sled. I can't pull it. I start crying in the first few hours. I literally talk about the negative voice in my head. I start crying. That's how pathetic I feel. And what happens when you cry and it's minus 30 degrees outside? Well, it turns out the tears, they freeze to your face, uh, which is if you've ever felt a, a more pathetic feeling in the world, I don't know what it is, but that is an all time pathetic feeling. I just told the world I'm gonna do this thing. I can't even make it an hour into the journey. And now I'm crying with frozen tears to my face. Horrible. And I think to myself, you know, misery loves company. Captain Lou must be struggling too. So I finally decide I'm going to glance over in his direction and I glance over in his direction. And I just exactly, I just see this full military man in stride, just like disappearing across the horizon, like no issues, just kicking my ass out of the gate. Like just goodbye. I can't even see him anymore. And I'm like, oh shit. And, and does that little voice in your head say, hey, Colin, we're fucked? Is that is that yeah, 100%, 100%. That voice? I, call, I call my wife. I say, I know we named our project The Impossible First. I think we nailed it because this is sure as hell impossible. And she's like, she, she kind of convinces me to calm my mind down for a second, get inside my tent for the first night and be like, you know, maybe you'll wake up tomorrow, feel a little better, just like gather yourself. So I go to sleep that first night in Antarctica and I wake up in my tent and I always joke. I'm like, well, well who is in the tent with me? And people are like, did Lou come back for you? No, no, no. Lou is not back in my tent. I am in my tent with five of the worst versions of myself. 
Colin, you're an idiot. Colin, you're a piece of shit. Colin, what you told people you're going to do this. You didn't even make it one day. You're a failure. You're whole, I mean, just literally beating up Colin, on myself. You're a pussy. You can't even <laughs> walk two steps with this freaking 400 pound sled. <laughs> yeah. The, all the things, right? But I am a big believer in, and I mean, I was desperate. I was, I'll admit it. I was desperate. Um, but I'm a big believer that we are the stories that we tell ourselves. I'll say it again. We are the stories that we tell ourselves. And I'm repeating this negative, negative self-talk as we're talking about in this. And I think there's only one way for me to cut through this noise. And I stand up outside of my tent, out to the end. You know, nobody's out there, obviously. It's just me. And I yell actually out loud at the top of my lungs. Now it's no longer the inner voice. It's I'm actually expressing it out loud. And I start yelling, Colin, you are strong. You are capable. You are strong. I'm trying to quiet this voice. And I wish I could say that mantra. And like, then I pulled my sled and it was so easy. No, Lou kicked my ass for a long time. Although, spoiler alert, I did catch up to him. I did pass him and I did become the first and I completed this journey. But it's in that moment, right? It's in that R- moment. Hold on, hold on. Slow down. You just said a bunch of shit there. So remind me, did Captain Lou make his mission? He did. He finished a few days And how much, me. remind me how much you beat him by? Uh, two and a half days, something like that. I, but I did, interestingly enough. Some people think this and is weird, two and a half but, days is somewhat close for a race like that. Oh but yeah, fifty-four you, days. You know like, you're beating him as we're coming to an end, right? You know in the last twenty-five percent of the race or so. Yeah, that, but there's like this uncertainty because we had these GPSs and then that they were tracking us, and like and the news articles were this, and then all of a sudden his GPS went dark for the last week, and I'm thinking, is he trying to make him? You know, like I think I'm ahead of him, but I'm not hundred percent sure. And like you know, there's which a is part bit of what's driving you to make sure that you win, right? There's certainly some subterfuge going on there, but in the end. Uh, you know, he he is literally right out of central casting. That's a perfect description. But I did, after I got there first, I told the plane to not come pick me up. And I waited for him because what had grown inside of me, to be honest, was I was I was proud to be first. Don't get me wrong. I was trying to be first. I'm first. I can always be first, whatever. But I was also driven by him. And also, in the end, what I was left with was this deep camaraderie. You know, there's 7 billion people on the planet. There's like one other guy that's walked across Antarctica alone. It was like kind of like I wanted to be the first to congratulate him because him making it across was amazing. And I also will, and I think this applies to business. I think this applies to all sorts of things is him and I, we've hung out afterwards, you know, in in London and whatnot. We've we've kept in touch loosely. Um, And we both acknowledge that we don't think either one of us would have made it had the other one not been out there. Meaning like that competition, there was days when it was 70 mile per hour headwind and you're like, this is ridiculous. Like I should stop and take the day off. And I didn't because in the back of my mind was like, well, Lou's such a badass. Like what if he goes and then he gets a lead and I didn't go and I was too soft. So I didn't take a single day off. And on the last day, I was on my last bite of food, meaning had I taken days off, you know, in the first few weeks or whatever, like I wouldn't have actually been able to make it to the end. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely it was definitely uh, an intense journey. But through that, I mean, to bring that kind of full circle, that negative voice in our head, it's powerful and we all live with it. You know, even now, even I've achieved these things, it's not like I get to the other side of Antarctica and I'm like, well, I never have that negative voice like in my head, like ever again. Right. But this. And you said it before about sort of knowing ourselves and being aware of that negative self-talk and understanding how to orient that. This call to action in my book, the the 12-hour walk, and as you said from your friend Ethan, you know, his his book Chatter, um, I got to pick that book up. I haven't read it. Um, sounds awesome. Uh, you'll, you'll love him. And if you want yeah. me to introduce you to him, actually, what would be really cool, I'm just thinking this in real time, is if the two of you collaborated on, I don't know if it needs to be a book, but 
Or maybe you could, the both of you could come on the podcast. It would be very interesting to have the both of you together unpacking because how many days does it take you to do this walk? It was 54 days for me. Yeah, exactly. And so that voice, that chatter, what percentage of time is that chatter howling something negative to, to, at you? A lot. A lot. Is it, is it 70% of the time that chatter's telling you? something negative or is it yeah what's your but interestingly enough yes that chatters a lot of the time but as the interest this was the most interesting part as i got deeper into the journey as my body was more depleted as i had lost more weight as i was running out of more food as i was more beat up my body got weaker but my mind got stronger and so that chatter actually quieted and quieted and quieted in that last week or so i found myself in almost a week-long flow state of purpose clarity fulfillment and talk about almost as infinite love as this sort of like resonance with family and purpose and my wife and all these different things. I thought I had found this place in my mind to quiet all that chatter. And I was like, I've got it. I've got it now. I, you know, I can take this with me for the rest of my life. And for a while that was true. I felt very strong and, and, and grounded in my own mind. And then a massive adverse shock that we all experienced COVID, right? We, I, before, you know, March of 2020, April, 2020, I'm locked down in my house, just like, you know, the billions of people on the planet. And I remember my wife looking at me at when we're in the Oregon coast, um, so me and my dog and my wife, we haven't seen anyone in however long we're doom scrolling the news every day, just like everyone. There's all this bad news. People are dying. People are sick. There's all this uncertainty. Everything we've got going on professionally is canceled. Like what the hell is going on? She looks at me. She's like, you haven't gotten out of your pajamas in three days. You've been sitting there staring at your phone, like reading article after article after article. And I was just getting more and more anxious and nervous and depressed and like upset in my own body and mind. And so I thought back to when was it like I was trying to break myself free of this funk. And I said, when was the last time that I felt that calm, that fulfillment, that flow, so to speak? I said, well, crazy to think, but it was actually walking across Antarctica 12 hours per day pulling this ridiculous sled. So I said to my wife, I said, this might sound stupid, but I'm grasping at straws here. I'm going to go for a 12-hour walk tomorrow. Don't worry about me. And she just kind of laughs like, of course you are. Yeah, have fun, whatever. And so I walk out my front door the next morning on the Oregon coast. And about 20 minutes into this walk, my phone buzzes in my pocket. Someone's texted me. And I instinctively reach down in my pocket you know, to uh, check my text back whoever. And I'm like, wait a second. Like, I'm going to text my friend back. Like I've been doom scrolling the news. I've been staring at my social media. I've been like all this, just like zoom calling my mom. Cause I can't see her in person. Like, I'm like, maybe I need to just a break from my phone too. And so I instinctively just put my phone in airplane mode and I go for this walk all day long. And I come back that night. And before I even say anything, before I can even tell my wife about this amazing experience I had this day, she looks at me and she goes, you're back. Not as that I'm back from that the day of walking. She's like, you're back. She can just see it on my face, a calmness, a peace, a bliss uh, inside of myself. And I said, yeah, honestly, I feel better than I felt in a long time. Now, I chalk that up to I'm the guy who's walked across Antarctica. This is whatever. I can walk long distances by myself. This is just a me thing. But COVID's happening, right? And all sorts of people, I'm sure all of us, really literally every single person was affected in some way, shape or form significantly by COVID, particularly in those first few months of intense lockdown. And people are, you know, friends, family of mine having a hard time. And so I start suggesting this to people. Just I'm like, this might sound ridiculous to you, but like I did this 12 hour walk thing where I walked in silence. Like if you want to try it, try it. And before I knew it, all sorts of different people in my life, young, old, you know, rich, poor, friends, family, whatever, started taking this walk. And every single person came back. 
And we're like, oh my God, man, like I needed that. I feel so much better than I felt in so long. Wow. That shifted this realm. I've been talking my, I've been so hard on myself, my own mind, but I, the first few hours of silence were horrible. It was even worse. I thought this is the worst idea ever, but you know, hour eight, hour nine, even as my body, again, same like me in Antarctica got weaker, my mind got stronger. Thank you. Thank you. And like I mentioned before, that 12-hour walk, it, you know, my, like I said, my 77-year-old my mother-in-law, her 12-hour walk looked a lot different than my you know, fit you know, college buddy who went 45 miles in 12 hours. It doesn't matter, but it's that exercise of the mind. And so this book at its core, it's full of adventure stories. It's full of you know, world record feats and edge of your seat storytelling to keep you entertained. But at its core, it's a call to action around mindset. It's a call to action around what, what your friend Ethan's sharing about chatter. It's how that chatter exists but we have the ability to control it. And this 12-hour walk is an exercise. It costs you nothing, but it is a way to walk out your front door and have a massive shift on your mindset that has a ripple effect throughout your life. So I invite anyone listening, take their pair of shoes, walk out their front door, pick a date on their calendar, put their phone in airplane mode and take the 12-hour walk. And you know what I love about that? And I, I wish I could remember where I read it because I haven't been able to find it easily on the internet. So I don't know. Maybe I was stoned and made it up. But I, I, I th- I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that John Muir said, there isn't a problem in the world that cannot be solved by a long walk in the woods. It is a great quote. And actually, I have the book right here. I opened the book literally before the book even starts. I'm holding it up. So that line is also uh, a John Muir quote. One of my, one of my Which favorites. Which says, read, read it, it for says, me. It's the different. I, I know the one you're talking about, but this, this is a slightly different one because he has so many great quotes. It says, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown. For going out, I found, was really going in. Where the hell would we be without? And frankly, in my world, John Muir is a saint. Oh, and the legend of all legends, for sure. You know, and interestingly, living where I live, most people don't realize that Silicon Valley was not called Silicon Valley until fairly recently. And you know who named Silicon Valley its original name? I do not. I don't know the history. John Muir. And when he came to Silicon Valley and he saw how um, incredible it was and the environment it was, particularly for growing fruit, which is what Silicon Valley was known for, peach trees and plum trees and, and so forth and so on. He named Silicon Valley, what we now know as Silicon Valley, he named it the Valley of the Heart's Delight. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, gosh, what I can, couldn't say enough. We could do a, a podcast after podcast about his, his And why genius. we love John. Yeah, exactly. And a Scotsman, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, what I love what you're doing is at a time uh, when the world is native digital more and more, you're declaring, go for a 12-hour walk in the analog world and shut everything off and see what happens. Absolutely. And again, it's not a abject vilification of technology. I very much live in the modern world and, and appreciate how, how old are you calling? Community. If you don't mind me asking 37. So I, I, I remember life without the internet. Uh, yeah. You're, you're right on the edge I'm of the, native digital, native analog. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of 85 is an interesting one. It's like, I, you know, went through most of high school before the internet was everywhere. And I got my first cell phone when I was like a junior or senior in college, but not a smartphone until after college. So there's sort of this, right. I'm sort of like that in between can remember. Yeah. You're not a purebred. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's not to say, and then, you know, the end of the book doesn't go. And when you get back from the 12 hour walk, 
you're going to be a monk and sit in a Himalayan cave by yourself and not talk to anyone ever. It's the opposite of that. It's actually a way of getting back to your vibrance, your vitality, your connection to self, your connection to community, wellness, health, mental health, et cetera. But taking a second to analyze that inner dialogue, right? Of taking a second to yes. look inward without the distractions, because it's so easy. I mean, I am so guilty of this when we're distracted or just need that dopamine hit. Okay, I'm just going to go on my social media real quick. Dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. Okay, I feel it's like eating junk food, right? For a, a second. And it's, it's a, a good exercise. And I also like to say that the 12-hour walk exercise itself, the call to action from this book, actually, it starts right now in this moment. When you're hearing about this on this podcast for the first time, what I mean is you're not actually walking right now in silence, most likely, because if you're listening to this podcast, you're actually doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> but you're- No, you're not. You're doing it great. <laughs> you're- actually, this is a side note. You know, As a podcaster- I never understood, Colin, how awesome it would be to have like listeners. It never even occurred to me, you know, because I'm I'm not a media person or whatever. And um, a couple of days ago, this guy tweeted uh, something. He had like an, uh, a, a, a frowny emoji. And he said, what happens when you get to the gym and there's no juice left in your podcast to listen to, no juice left in your iPhone to listen to Lockhead's podcast? And I was like, yeah, that's how I want people to feel. That's right. That's right. No, but the, what I was going to say is, is that the experience starts right now. What I mean by that is, of course, you're not walking for 12 hours in silence right now, but you're hearing about this pug possibly for the first time on this podcast. I'm suggesting this idea to you. I'm saying the prescription's obvious. I'm saying walk out your front door, go for a 12-hour walk in silence. And your brain, that chatter, that that thought process in your brain is doing something immediately. So maybe there's 1% of people that say, the best idea I've ever heard of. I'm, so I'm doing this tomorrow. You know, I cleared my schedule. I'm doing this tomorrow. Hell yeah. And then there's a small percentage of people, hopefully it's a small percentage of people that think, that Colin O'Brady guy is a real idiot. This is the stupidest, worst idea I've ever heard of in my entire life. Well, I hope that's a small percentage of people. I think most people live somewhere in the middle of that where you're going like, okay, I don't know. Should I do this? Start to bargain with yourself because you're being, I'm inviting you to this thing. You know, I'm inviting you to, to take this challenge on yourself, this initiation of sorts. And your brain starts to do this thing where you start having a few limiting beliefs. You start oscillating, right? The, the, that chatter, that self-talk, the, the worst versions of myself sitting in that tent, that is happening for you in this moment, most likely. And that's different for every person. But you start bargaining with yourself. You go, ah, this actually sounds pretty cool, but you know what, man? Like I got a busy job and kids, but I don't have enough time, you know? Or like, uh, last time I went on a hike, my feet really hurt and I hated that. So like this, this walk isn't for me, right? The, the, this, the, these limiting beliefs and the book breaks down the 10 most common limiting beliefs and how we can get past them. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I'm not strong enough. What if I fail? What if people criticize me? And so that the, they might, the inner dialogue is different for each one of us, but it's likely around one of these larger, you know, limiting belief topics I found are quite common. But when I say it starts right now is that the exercise right now is by just being suggested the idea of doing this 12 hour walk, it forces your brain to think about something. It forces, I'm holding up a mirror to your own interior dialogue as you're listening to this podcast. And I'm going, well, what, what is your loop? What is the loop that you're telling yourself? Because most likely if you're bargaining with yourself in this moment of whether you should or shouldn't do this, the same limiting beliefs that you're applying to the 12 hour walk most likely, I'm almost willing to bet, are the same limiting beliefs that loop in your mind dozens and dozens and dozens of times throughout the next week, the next month, the next year that you assign to all sorts of things. Meaning these limiting beliefs, this same limiting belief that you're applying to the walk, most likely is what's holding you back in a number of areas of your life. 
But what's so powerful about calling them limiting beliefs is we're not calling them limiting truths or limiting facts. They're beliefs. Beliefs can be shifted. Beliefs can be changed. Beliefs can be evolved. And the 12-hour walk, if you're willing to put it on your calendar and actually complete it, what that does, it rewrites for your brain. You go, oh, when I first heard about this, this limiting belief came up. But I decided to not listen to that. I decided to yell effectively, I am strong, I am capable out to the world and complete the 12-hour walk. So when that limiting belief comes up on the other side of the walk, related to something completely different, you go to yourself, oh, I rem- oh hi- hello there, Mr. Limiting Belief. I remember you. Last time you came up, I decided not to listen to you. Keep moving forward. And I'm so glad that I did. So that's the ripple effect on the others. One of the net positive effects on the other side is you start to rewrite that. And that limiting belief voice, that chatter, that negative self-talk starts to get a little bit quieter, a little bit quieter as that possible mindset, that, that limitless possibilities voice in your mind gets a little bit louder, a little bit louder as you unlock your best life and move, move towards your own best self. I'm reminded years ago, um, before Chicken Soup for the Soul, I remember uh, reading some of Jack Canfield's work at the time, kind of as he was, you know, coming up as a motivational speaker. And one of the things he talked about in this exact regard is change the tapes. Mm -hmm. And the interesting dot that you connect, which is, I think, the same dot around Outward Bound, is it's one thing to go through a mental exercise of changing the tapes. You You could sit there yourself and work on that, the chatter and changing the tapes and trying to break down your self-limiting self-conversation and beliefs. There is a powerful thing that shifts when you connect the idea of changing your mindset through a physical activity. Yeah. It's different when you have to test yourself mentally and physically. That is the essence of that. And I'll, I'll say that again, don't take my word for it. Go have your own experience. Because that experiential learning, that visceral interaction with your own self in the physical mind and body, that is what truly imprints lessons. And look, don't, I'm an avid reader. I'm an avid podcast listener. I love absorbing information. But I find that the lessons that imprint the deepest are when I can take a lesson or an inspiration from a book, from a film, from a podcast, and then bring that into my life in action. And that's what the 12 hour walk, it bridges those two things. It gives you a framework for thinking about this, but then it's like, don't just take my word for it, man. Go and do this because your experience afterward is going to be yours and yours only that imprints on your own psyche and soul through the physical world of doing this exercise. So let me, if you want to play a little bit with this, go a little bit deeper. A lot of people talk about how the failure, uh, fear of failure stops us, blah, blah, blah. When you really start to go deep on that, what you discover is one of the, the, one of my favorite things is ask why five to seven times, right? So why do you have a fear of failure? Well, when you unpack that for a lot of us, it's actually the fear of failure is the surface. What we're really afraid of is our own legendary. Mm. That is to say, if we were to do, let's take the 12 hour challenge. And we were to discover that what we thought was a limitation was not. What shows up for a lot of people right after that is, okay, well, if that limitation's not true, what about all these other fucking limitations? (laughs) And then they realize that they're living in a cage that they constructed. And 
What they're really terrified about is that not a failure, but they're greater than they ever imagined themselves to be. And that if I take Colin's advice and I have a breakthrough in this one area, then I will have this horrible experience that says, I've constructed this self-limiting cage. And now I got to look at that cage everywhere in my life. And the truth is, I'm confronted by my greatness. Mm. Yes. And so as you've broken these barriers, you're a world record holder, uh, Everest twice, et cetera. When you achieve these mountaintops, literally, have you had an experience, Colin, that says, well, fuck, I just did this. And now I'm known as this guy. And I don't know how to be this guy. And I'm afraid that I won't live up to the guy that I just showed myself to be that now the world expects me to be that guy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna bastardize this quote, um, and I'm gonna forget who it was. So forgive my my brain is going blank. But it's the what's the quote? It's our, our biggest fear is not that we're weak, but that we're powerful beyond measure. Um, uh, right? Um, Walt Whitman, or gosh, forgive me for who's ever listening who knows the answer to that, who actually said that quote. Um, but it's it's one of my favorites. Yeah, right. I think that I, I really like what you said. And I'll, I'll answer the question directly about how it relates to me. But what you said about constructing these cages, these we can we construct our own reality, and what is both frightening and also amazing about that is depending on your frame on that, it can be everything or nothing. Meaning it can be the possible mindset. It can be limitless possibilities. It can be a mon- abundance of money, wealth, prosperity, love, joy, happiness, fulfillment, or it can be all that you can convince yourself that you're not worthy of any of those things and create this box around yourself, right? But your reality is so much dictated by that inner, inner thing, um, inner dialogue. You know, as, as it relates to myself, it, it's also interesting Identity is such an interesting thing because I think we initially constructed ourselves, but of course, there's some external implications of that. Um, in your case, I think it's very, very astute of you to point out. Okay, so you walk across Antarctica. There was two billion media impressions around that. You know, eight New York Times articles and the Today Show and Fallon and you know whatever all the big shows and podcasts. Like a lot of people heard about this thing, right? Um, and so therefore, like. Oh, you're Colin O'Brady. You're the guy who walked across Antarctica like by yourself. You're the man. <laughs> and you know, to be honest, it's like I'm a human being. Like, is that there are other days where that's good for my ego and I feel confident and all this kind of stuff? Sure. But then the flip side of that, which is interesting, is some people struggle to be in their power, in their strength, and they never can feel that, right? Now I have the world reflecting that fully back to me all of the time. So what what becomes my edge? Well, how do, how can I be vulnerable? How can I actually be vulnerable? Colin, you're the guy who walked across Antarctica. Uh, it's just silly things. I'll be in New York City having dinner with a friend and it's the middle of winter and they look at me and they go, why are you wearing a coat? And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's winter in New York City. And they're like, but, but it's not minus 30. You must not get cold, right? <laughs> you know, and that's a stupid metaphor, but it's like, well, why are you upset? Why are you crying? You've experienced harder, you know, actually being like, even though I am the guy who this, Part of life is to be vulnerable. Part of life is to feel the emotions of sadness, loss, uh, you know, negativity, negative mindset, that loop. It's not like I'm, you know, never have a, I wrote a book about how we can get over limiting beliefs. I think I've done a great job of rewriting that and have some good wisdom for how people can overcome that in their own life. But I'm also still human. 
And to have the, the, the courage to acknowledge that in the face of a world that's reflecting back on me, this identity in its own way can become its own cage if you're not careful. And I think that that's really, it's a very insightful question. Thank you. There's, it even goes further, which is early on in our podcast, we had Eric Weinmeier on. Do you yeah, know him by yeah, chance? Yeah, yeah, blind, amazing story, incredible. Uh, amazing story, first blind man to summit Everest, et cetera. And I forget who said this to him, but it was some, some point afterwards, somebody important in his life said something like, Eric, don't make that your greatest achievement. And so this is, I think, the challenge for many of us, which is you achieve something great and then I have this T-shirt that my wife, Carrie, and I think is really funny. It's a black T-shirt, and all it says on it is former, <laughs> right? And so, like, when I first started writing and podcasting, I was a former. I was a former entrepreneur and marketing executive yeah. who did all this wonderful shit, <laughs> and now I'm a nobody, Yeah. right? Yeah. Well, now I'm not a former anymore because I've been successful as a podcaster and a writer. I can start with what I am, and I have this background. But my my present is not who I was. It's who I is, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when you achieve something legendary, you know, it's like you imagine somebody who wrote like a one hit wonder. Totally. And like you're known for that one fucking song for your entire life. And if you're never able to achieve anything other than that, that it haunts people. Right. So that this is this your greatness, particularly when it's mirrored back to you, then can become a curse if we don't embrace a new relationship with self. If our self relationship is I'm a former, then the, the, the achievement now becomes a cross to bear. Well, and, and I'm smiling because it, it's, it's just so, so perfectly in line with the way I think chapter four um, of the, of the 12 hour walk, the, the, the chapter heading is I'm not a blank. It's the limiting belief of I'm not a podcaster. I'm not a writer because I haven't, I'm the, I've done this, this, I'm a former blah, 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 but I'm not a blank. But I opened the chapter up with me in a river falling flat on my face in a rowboat, literally. And the context, you think, oh God, he's in an insane and intense emo you know, thing. I heard maybe he rode a boat across the roughest ocean in the world. What's happening? Whatever. And then I stand up. And I'm in six inches of water in the Willamette River in Portland, Oregon. And I'm like, wait, what's happening here? I set the goal after crossing Antarctica solo to row a boat across Drake Passage, the most dangerous ocean rowing in the world. So much so that I went in with such confidence. Literally, literally fucking insane objective, yeah. Colin. <laughs> 40 foot swells, iceberg, 750 miles of the most dangerous ocean in the world. It's literally freezing cold, 32 Fahrenheit, you know, zero Celsius water, practically frozen um, on a, you know, between South America and Antarctica. And I, <laughs> I even convinced the Discovery Channel um, I go in hot. I'm like, this is my next big goal. Cause everyone's like, what's next Colin? You walked across this, is my next big goal. I'm the explorer guy. I'm going to do this thing, whatever. And they're like, great. They green light this multi-million dollar, uh, featured documentary film about it called the impossible row. And then I look in the mirror and of course my wife knows this and she goes, when are you going to tell people that you've never rode a boat anywhere? Like anywhere, like not in college, not in summer camp, not anywhere. And I'm leaving for this rowing expedition in three months. And so I go and a buddy of mine, thankfully, takes pity on me. This guy named Chris Voida from Portland is a friend of mine who's been a longtime rower. And I, and I confide in him, hey, man, I'm leaving for three months to row the Drake Passage. And he says to me, oh, dude, we've been friends this whole time. I didn't know you, you rowed so much. And I said, I don't. And that's why I called you. Can you take me down to the river and teach me a thing or two? And I fall flat on my face. 
just like maybe your first podcast had five listeners or 10 listeners or your mom gave you a pat on the back or something like that, right? Like you have to start somewhere. But the I point actually of think that- my mom thought it sucked in the beginning. <laughs> She, she was actually just telling me, she, she, I think you've gotten a lot better, which sometimes the unsaid is louder than the said, but right. I, 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 I digress. So you haven't fucking rowed. You're three months away from this thing. And, and I, I try to learn how to row and I, you know, spoiler alert. I make, I make the rowing crossing. I survive it. I become the world first with a few other people. We do this as a team. Um, but the point is, is that fear of identity, that fear of I'm not a blank. Therefore I never can be is such a dramatic shift. That's the difference between, you know, Carol Dweck, one of my favorite researchers, the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset, right? That's the the fixed mindset says, I am this, though, therefore I always be this. The growth mindset says, I'm not this right now, but I could be a rower. And I point out to people and I say it in the book, it's like Kobe Bryant at some point shot his first hoop, dribbled, dribbled the basketball for the first time. Meryl Streep had to try out for the school play before she got, you know, however many Oscars she had. Stephen King had to pen his first shitty essay before he wrote 64, you know, the most famous, you know, novels of all time, right? Even the people who are experts at some point were novices. So if you're a novice today, you're not a blank. All you have to do is add one word to the end of that sentence. I'm not a podcaster yet. I'm not a writer yet. I'm not a fill in the blank. I'm not a rower yet. But you can learn, you can grow, you can evolve, and you need to part claiming that in your identity. Jog around. You're not a runner. Fine. Go for a jog around your house for one minute right now. And then just be like, I'm a runner. Come back to your wife and say, hey, I'm a runner. I'm a runner. What do you mean? You're not a runner. I'm a runner. I just went for a run. I'm a run. I'm not a, I'm not a world-class marathoner yet, but I'm a runner. I've done one podcast. I'm a podcaster. And that shift of owning that in their identity is yes. so insanely powerful. Uh, but yes. I, 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 that, that, uh, the anecdote about the black t-shirt will stick with me, the former. That just, that cracks me up and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Colin, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we uh, kick out of this one? No, it's been a pleasure to be here with you, uh, Chris. It's so much fun. I feel like we could keep chopping it up uh, for hours. And it's been a pleasure uh, to be here with you, Chris. Thank you, brother. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you for this amazing new book. And thank you for the inspiration that you are in the world. Well, there he is, the absolutely legendary Colin O'Brady. His new book is out. It's a stunner. I loved it. It's called The 12-Hour Walk. Invest one day, conquer your mind, and unlock your best life. And it's available wherever you get legendary books. Again, the book's called The 12-Hour Walk. Pick up your copy today. And if you enjoyed this conversation with Colin, please do share it with the people that you love, respect, and admire in your life. You never know. The person you inspire may go on to do legendary things in her or his life. So please share this oddcast right now. All right. We would like to thank, we would like to thank you. Thank you very much for investing part of your life with us. We deeply appreciate it. Also Ashton Ballard and uh, Alyssa Fortunato for helping to make today's happen. My friends, uh, uh, today's episode happened. That is <laughs> my friends at one life fully live.org are the nonprofit helping people dream, plan and live their best life. Now's the time. If you want to help people at a time where more people need help in the excited States than ever before, take on their life, visit onelifefullylive.org. My friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. Check them out at bottleneck.online for a legendary assistant who is a human being empowered by technology who will never get near you. They've been socially distancing before that was a thing. My friends at HaloApp are the real life network. We all know that social media is for fake life. 
Wouldn't it be great if there was a place for your real friends with no algorithms in real privacy? That's Hallowapp. Go to H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com. That's Hallowapp.com or search Hallowapp in your app store of choice and get on the program today, the Real Life Network. Uh, I need to warn you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes and that bugs do get smashed on the wind on the wind on, <laughs> on the windshield. Jeez Louise. Jeez. You know, Lockhead, if you're gonna have a podcast, you should learn how to talk. And I haven't even had anything to drink. Um, this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And also, um, if you're in marketing, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're trying to change the future, well, why not check out our other podcast, Lockhead on Marketing? Um, it is a short solo episodes designed to have insights, data, and so forth on how to do legendary category design and marketing. Check out Lockhead on Marketing today. This podcast contains content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking and extreme result production. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time. His name is Jason DeFilippo. Check him out at jason.fyi. He's building the greatest podcast studio in the Los Angeles area. So if you want to do some legendary podcasting, jason.fyi. Uh, our technical execution at Lockhead.com are built by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Show notes by GM Simon and, and the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the win. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm. Remember to spread non-obvious thinking. Everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. Please, for the love of God, Get out of the passing lane. Katie, Ran- Katie Lang was right. Listen to the Ramones. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott O'Malonic, editor of Stink, I mean, Inc. magazine. Sorry, Scotty. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Until we're together again, please be safe, stay legendary, and of course, follow your different. <laughs>